The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. I was reflecting before the service for a moment with Pastor Hayden and It's been a while since I've been here to preach. We're nearing the end of the Lord's Prayer, and this is only my second crack at a line. But we have just been blessed with so many different voices that have brought the word throughout this series to hear from uh, Pastor Hayden, but also Pastor Nina and Pastor Steve to to bring each one of who they are and, and how the elders have also taken this up and used the Lord's Prayer to shape it. It's, it's something so familiar, but when we lend our different voices to it, the Spirit speaks anew each and every time, and for that, I'm so thankful. So we come now nearing the end of the prayer, right before the Amen, at least as it is in Scripture. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Last week, to frame up the conversation about forgiveness, Pastor Hayden led us to reflect on one of the great science fiction trilogies, sagas of all time, Star Wars. So it makes sense that if we talk about temptation, we talk about the greatest fantasy story ever put to pen and ever put to film, The Lord of the Rings. For what captures a better picture of temptation than the one ring itself? In the way it is filmed, it is this interesting mix of temptation, not only from simply looking at it and desiring it as an object, but also the way that it gently whispers at those who wear it, encouraging them to put it on, encouraging them to use this power. And what's more, even though the One Ring is a singular object of power, there are different motivations to use it, different reactions to being offered it. We see Frodo often reaches for the ring in a moment of fear, an attempt to escape from the darker forces that would overpower such a small hobbit. Or the great warrior Boromir, who sees it as an object of power in which he can use to fight evil, to save his people. But ultimately, the one ring corrupts him and he reacts poorly against his companions. Perhaps some people, like the dwarf Gimli, are not so much tempted, but simply at the sound of, we must destroy the ring, takes his axe and swings at it. Of course, it does nothing, but still, it doesn't hold any sway for him. It's this idea of temptation, this desire to reach your hand out and take something that is probably not so good for you, that each of the characters wrestles with when they're presented with the one ring. But in some cases, it's more like a test. We look at Gandalf and Galadriel, who have potentially the power and the ability to do something with the ring for good, but they know that the ultimate ends are poor, and so they resist. They resist that temptation. They pass that test. And it's this idea of testing that is actually probably closer to the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate because the Greek, it can be rendered as temptation, it, but is also rendering as testing. Some commentators have written it as, do not bring us into a time of trial. So this is the idea of something greater than 
a one-time moment of temptation, something bigger, something more long-lasting. Some would say it's perhaps even apocalyptic, a great time of trial, a great time of testing. They would look to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, this great cataclysmic event that washed over the new church and the people of Israel. Or maybe more so, we would look ahead to the book of Revelation. That seems to be describing a time of great tribulation, of testing, where only the faithful remnant survive. But I would disagree with these commentators. Everything about the prayer thus far has been about our daily bread, about our needs, about the kingdom coming here and now in the present. They are very immediate, locked into our life as it is. It would be weird, truly, for Jesus to suddenly pivot right at the end to something so far away after we've thought about what is so close to us. Do not put us to the test. Do not lead us into a moment of testing. Jesus is addressing the anxiety that comes with testing. What if I fail? For I think it's part of the human condition to when presented with a difficult task, to be anxious about the outcome. Are we anxious about failing to live out our faith properly? holding fast to it in all circumstances? Do we have anxiety that if the right person says the right things to us that we would question our faith and come into doubt? Are we anxious that our faith is perhaps not as strong as it could be to resist all temptation, to stand firm in a time of testing? What if I fail? If I don't pass the test, what does it say about me? And I want you to hold that thought in your mind. Hold that anxious thought. Don't hold it too close because we don't want to dwell on it. Because there's another way that we can also think about testing, right? We can think about us being tested, but before that, we should think about what does it mean to test God? Because a lot of this prayer is also about God and who He is. We started by imploring of our Father. Hallow be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Much of the prayer is a reflection on God's character, who he is, what he is capable of. So when we ask God not to lead us into temptation, are we instead giving him an imperative about how we think God should act? God, you do not lead me to temptation. Do not test me. Do not tempt me. Do not make me walk through this difficult path which I fear that I may fail. This idea of testing God is common throughout all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. We see in Exodus 17:7, the people, they grumble, they quarrel against God. They want water. So Moses strikes a rock at God's behest, and water comes through, and God provides. But it wasn't a nice narrative. The people were questioning who God was. And so Moses, then he called the place Massah and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord not among us? They stood there as a community in this moment, and they looked around and said, God hasn't provided for our needs today. That's strange. 
Is he really then our God? Is he really all-powerful? We've had, you know, the plagues that liberated us from Egypt. We crossed through the Red Sea. God has provided manna from heaven for our day-to-day. We saw his majesty at Mount Sinai. Is God really there? Prove it. It's a dangerous thing to begin to asking God to prove who he is, to demonstrate his character. Paul, in fact, warns about this, bringing up this entire history of the Israelites. He writes to the church in Corinth, from which we have already read today, and he warns them, do not grumble, as some of them did, reflecting back on the Israelites, for they were killed and destroyed by an angel. Israel's quarreling, Israel's grumbling, like when they asked for meat because they were not satisfied with enough manna, so they tested God for more. And many of them lost their lives. And so it makes us ask the question, when we test God, when we come into the space of wondering if he's really there, if he's really all-powerful, if he really cares about us, is that because we don't understand his character? Are we expecting him to do something that he is not, to be someone that he is not? Asking him to act in a way that would make us feel better, but is not necessarily confirming who God's character is. Take the example of Gideon and the fleece. God lifts up this lowest of the low from his tribe and says, you will lead Israel up against the Midianites, a people that were brought in to punish Israel for their sins. But God heard their cries and said, all right, you probably learned your lesson. I am gracious. I am compassionate. We are, let's get rid of these Midianites. And so he asks Gideon to do it. And he says, through you, I am going to make this happen. And Gideon looks at God and says, prove it. How do I know you're for real? Let's work out a test. So he lays out a fleece and says, in the morning, there'll be dew on the fleece, but not on the ground. And God says, okay, I can do that. But that wasn't enough. Gideon once again says, prove it. Prove who you are. You say that you are all powerful. You say that you can drive these oppressors out of our land and restore us to our farmland. We're going to do the test again because I'm still not sure. The first time wasn't good enough. Prove to me with something small so that I may trust you with something big. Gideon was testing, probing God's character, trying to figure out what he was capable of before he committed to him. Because Gideon was anxious. He was anxious about his own test that was to come, his own test of leading Israel in battle against their enemy. What if I fail? What if God's not with me? He may have wondered, well, perhaps God wasn't strong enough to keep the Midianites out in the first place. He questions God's character. He's not aware fully of who he is, and so he tests God. Take time to learn God, to learn his character, so that we don't need to test him because he is steadfast. But perhaps it is not that we desire to test God, but we put ourselves in a situation that requires us 
to test God. Through our intense distrust in his character, through his providence, his ability to rule, his power and his majesty, do we try and force God's hand by stepping out on our own? Take Abraham, for example. Abraham is old and he's childless with his wife, Sarah. Both of them are well beyond, well, Sarah for sure is well beyond the ability to give birth. But God promised Abraham a son. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and that only starts if you have children. But Abraham does not believe in God. So he has a child by Sarah's servant Hagar, the son Ishmael. He doesn't trust in God, but God is still gracious and gives Abraham a son. He gives Abraham Isaac. Abraham forces God's hand, perhaps outside of his timing, but God is still gracious and says, fine, you want to test me? You want to test my providence, my word, my capacity? All right. But then God, in turn, tests Abraham. He calls him to sacrifice his son Isaac as a test of God's providential ability. God gave him a son once, and Abraham is then in turn tested in his faith that God is going to give him a son again. And so Abraham not only invited this test on God, but a test on himself. It's not so much an external force that worked on Abraham, but Abraham invited that testing into his own life. Sometimes we put ourselves in situations in circumstances that invite the testing of our faith, somewhere we had no business being, but we felt confident enough in our own ability that we ended up being tested. But of course, we would rather not have to go this far to have our faith in God tested. I don't think anyone here who is a parent wants to be in the situation where God is testing their faith by asking them to sacrifice their children. No one wants that. And that is perhaps why Jesus then invites us to pray that we are not led into testing. Not only should we be confident in the character of God, but we should also be cautious, if not a little bit afraid, of inviting testing into our life. R.T. France puts it this way. For the disciples, he says, the disciples, aware of their weaknesses, should not desire such testing and should pray to be spared exposure to situations in which they are vulnerable. No one exemplifies this overconfidence or this improper assessment of their strength than Peter. As the time of Jesus' crucifixion drew closer, Peter said he would stand fast with Jesus. That even though Jesus said, all of you are going to desert me, Peter said, not I. They can all run away, but I'm standing fast. Peter insisted on being tested, tested in his commitment. He laid down the challenge. No matter what comes, Lord, I will be with you. But we know what happens. Jesus is arrested. Peter flees. And when it comes to the scene in the courtyard, Peter is asked not once, not twice, but three times if he was with Jesus, and three times he denies it. Three times he demonstrates that he was not strong enough to stand by the testimony of his faith, to stand by his words. Three times he failed the testing that he invited on himself. 
He thought he could do it. Perhaps he thought that since Jesus called him the rock on which he would build his church, Peter thought, then I am good enough. Peter, the rock, nothing's going to shake me. He miscalculated who he was, his own character, and tried to go it on his own way. And he had to live with denying Jesus three times. But in the future years, Peter showed that he would stand firm. He learned. He relied more on the Spirit. And in fact, he suffered imprisonment and even unto death for his faith in Christ. And this would be a refrain that would be carried through the early church. The immediate context of them was persecution regularly. Deaths in Colosseums burned at the stake for nearly 300 years on and off. The church suffered. We see it through all out the New Testament alone. The stoning of Stephen, imprisonment of Peter. Paul is beaten many times, nearly killed a number of others, and eventually carted off to Rome and executed. Their faith was tested in ways that we should not wish on ourselves. Nobody should wish for that kind of trial or temptation in their community. Because truly, if we long for this kind of testing, for trials and tribulations, if we long to be put to the test because we feel like we can resist it, are we misled or just foolishly overconfident? Because it's not our capacity that allows us to resist temptation. In each and every one of these stories, throughout the Old and the New Testament, it is God's character that comes through in the end. It is who God is, his ability, his capacity for love and providence that makes the stories turn out all right. And that is why Jesus is such an important person for us to reflect on. For N.T. Wright says that Jesus was not spared trials, but invites his followers to share his own struggles and to experience the same spirituality that sustained him. Jesus becomes our model for resisting trials and temptations, and he also becomes our aid, our companion, the one that lifts us up. For we read in our call to good living from Hebrews. And you'll have to forgive me, my bookmarks are all falling out over here. We read that because he himself, Jesus Christ, suffered when being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our capacity to resist temptation, our capacity to not only resist the temptation to test God in his character, but also to resist the testing and temptation that we might find ourselves in, comes in Jesus. The fact that he has resisted all trials, all temptations, being fully human, he knows what we go through, and he will lift us up. But it still begs the question of what is testing in our lives and why is it there? If God knows that we are going to fall flat each and every time that we are tested, each and every time that we attempt to test him, why does it still happen? We would ask, is there any positive testing or is it all just terrible for us? Because if we ask God not to lead us into testing, does that mean that he is actively going to steer us away? We could reflect back to Abraham, 
For even though Abraham invited this testing on himself, God still tested him. But it was not to prove that Abraham could do it on his own, but perhaps to prove how far Abraham had come in his walk of faith. How far Abraham had come from distrusting God to provide him a male heir, so he went and had his own with Hagar. Abraham then demonstrated his faith by sacrificing, by almost sacrificing his son Isaac. But God would have only asked him to do that if he was 100% certain that Abraham would go through with it. It's like if a teacher is only going to give you a test in school when they know you're going to get 100% because they are going to sit down and take it with you. They're going to help you through your struggles to show you how much you know and to help you make up the gaps where you don't. This prayer, do not lead us into temptation, is to protect us from entering into trials and testing periods where we know we will fail, but to ask God to come along with us. Lead us not into temptation alone. Lead us not into temptation where we will fail, but deliver us from evil. Here, Jesus grounds the source of what evil temptation is. Because James tells us that it cannot be God. God does not tempt us to do evil. He does not lead us astray. Nothing evil comes from God. The evil one, the accuser, the devil, that one that we see time and time again in Scripture in the garden as a serpent, it's the accuser in the book of Job. It reminds us that there is a supernatural element to life. That there are forces that work against God. Temptation does not come from God, but where? From the devil. And perhaps from our own original desire to be gods in the garden. It reminds us not to trivialize the trials and testing and temptation that may come into our lives. In the situations that we find ourselves in to think it's just human nature or it's just an accidental coincidence, but that there is real spiritual warfare at work in this world. But we also pray confidently that though we know that there are terrible forces at work, that God can deliver us. We don't ask for this petition for deliverance from temptation without any source of grounded hope. For Scripture is full of God conquering evil. This is a petition of trust, that God will be faithful to us, knowing that we cannot do it on our own. And what's more, it invites us to think of deliverance from evil. The disciples, when they first heard this prayer, could not have known what that truly would have meant, but for us, we look at that and we see the cross. We see Jesus who is tempted to turn away at every single moment, tempted in the desert to not walk the path of the cross, and instead the devil would give him all power and authority. In the Garden of Gethsemane, praying with such earnest that this horrible death would pass over him. The temptation must have been very real for him to cut and run, to say, God, find someone else. I don't want this. 
I know what needs to be done to deliver your people from evil, but I am scared. So when we pray, lead us not into testing. Deliver us from evil. The person of Christ should be at the front and center for what he did to ensure that we could truly be delivered from evil, truly resist temptation by nature of his own suffering and death. And he leaves us with his spirit, a spirit that empowers us to then do good, the spirit of that death and resurrection that invites us to live well, to discern with God's wisdom and strength situations that are good, tests that show good fruit, and not be led astray, not rely on our own strength. Because none of us could have walked that journey to the cross. None of us should have the confidence to believe that we could resist that kind of trial and temptation, but be so immensely grateful that Jesus did it on our behalf. And that makes Jesus the kind of person to turn over your struggles and anxieties with faith to, to turn over your doubts those moments where you feel weak in your faith and your capacity to do good. Because no matter how low you feel, no matter how you think you have failed, Christ has borne worse for you, not in some weird display of one-upmanship, but so that you don't have to bear it on your own, so that he can lift you up in your weakness. And it is this Jesus that we sing about on Sunday mornings. It is this Jesus that we pray to throughout the week, that when we are truly at the end of it, when we are on the absolute ropes of our own strength, he's right behind us, lifting us up. So I'd like to invite the praise team to come back up, and, and as a prayer of response, as an as a opportunity to reflect on the person of Christ, we're going to Respond with that song that we opened the service with, that prelude, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Because when it comes to trials and temptations and deliverance from the evil, that is the only way. And God has been so good to give us that way. For to have no temptation has overcome anyone that works through Christ.